difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tosh Robinson, here again with Keith Phipps and Scott Tobias. Our producer, Genevieve Kosky, has relocated to Michigan, and she'll be back as soon as she's overcome that mysterious bout of radiation sickness she got after her Chicago apartment was flattened. Last week, we discussed 1954's Godzilla, Shiro Honda's original creature feature about a tragic giant lizard that represents humans' overwhelming ambition and capacity for violence. This week, we bring in the modern equivalent, 2019's Godzilla King of the Monsters, which openly celebrates that same violence. Flatten cities! Woo! You bite that three-headed monster right in one of the heads, Godzilla! This week, we bring in the modern equivalent, 2019's Godzilla, King of the Monsters, which openly celebrates that same violence. Flatten cities! Woo! The new Godzilla King of the Monsters is part of Warner's Monsterverse, a franchise encompassing both Godzilla and King Kong, who are due to square off in yet another sequel in 2020. This new film follows 2014's American reboot Godzilla and 2017's King Kong reboot Skull Island, but it also consciously echoes the original Godzilla, with references to a horrific weapon called the Oxygen Destroyer, and concerns about the environment and the ways Godzilla might just be the punishment that humanity deserves for what it's doing to our world. But the new film is also a rebooted roundup of other creature feature kaiju monsters of the last 50 years, including King Ghidorah, Rodan, and Mothra, who all have significant roles to play in the latest Battle Royale. We'll look at how Godzilla and his franchise have evolved over the last 50 years after this. What we are witnessing here is the return of Titans. How many of these things are there? Seventeen and counting. That's messed up. <laughs> Mothra. Rodin. Ghidorah. Oh my. They're moving like a pack. They're hunting. They all respond directly to an alpha. We stop this Ghidorah. We stop them all. Is there another creature that might stand a chance against him? My God. Zilla. All right, guys. What'd you think of Godzilla, King of the Monsters? <laughs> they're they're looking at each other there's there's this thing that old married couples do that's kind of a how are we going to address this look and they just gave it to each other and it's like how are we going to talk to the, which... the child who has disappointed us so uh, thoroughly i mean i, I just want to i want to be as positive as possible there's some really striking images mm-hmm. in this I, I think just on a, a frame-by-frame basis there's a lot of memorable um you know compositions and and the monsters are cool um, I grew a little tired of the smoked out look, but it is definitely an aesthetic choice. So we're start. So um, we're starting this lecture as saying, "Son, you know we're proud of you. We love you, we no love matter you very what. Much. I mean, you know what it but, really struck, struck me as 
This is kind of the film equivalent of a comic book artist who's like really good at covers and splash pages, but doesn't know how to tell a story. Mm. Once I kind of locked onto that in my head while watching this, it's the, the whole thing kind of made sense to me. I mean, this is, I can see why it cut down to a really great trailer. This trailer had me super excited to see this film. I like the 2014 Godzilla just fine. I thought there's room for improvement, and I thought this was going to be that improvement, but I really grew weary quickly watching this film. Well, I mean, this film really had me appreciating the 2014 version so Mm. much more just by virtue of restraint. I mean, the the 2014 movie is so sort of classical in the sense that it gives you just a little bit at the beginning, and then it just holds off and holds off and holds off, and then you get this extraordinary last third where they really let things rip and it's just so satisfying you feel like as an audience member that this movie is really playing you like a piano or whatever it's you're these movies are supposed to do it's not just throwing a whole bunch of crazy crap at you all the time which is really what king of the monsters is and i maybe that's the spirit of it i mean you know we did see destroy all monsters it is really about giving you a lot of looks and giving you a lot of chaos and maybe there's fun to be had in that but i didn't have all that much fun. What about you? Mothra has really had a glow up over the years. I, I mean, I got to say that. I really enjoyed the Mothra imagery. And then mm-hmm. uh, going back and watching Destroy All Monsters, where Mothra is mostly just a, a big... Caterpillar? Uh, a big whatever. plastic caterpillar. Yeah. Like a really unconvincing plastic caterpillar that vaguely lunges into the path of toy trains. Uh, yeah, the idea of Mothra as like... A healer queen is definitely new to me and kind of an oddball fit with everything that's going on here. And I feel like this movie is working against itself pretty hard on the whole idea of we've messed up the earth. So the earth has given us these uh, titanic monsters that are going to help us by reviving the coral reefs and uh, fixing the ozone layer and bringing rain to the Sahara Desert. And oh, by the way, smooshing entire cities full of people. <laughs> but then, of course, you have the whole spoiler alert. Uh, King Ghidorah is an alien and doesn't belong to this <laughs> ecosystem business. Uh, and yet he has like, magic kaiju controlling powers which we can duplicate with a machine i there's so much going on (laughs) in this movie and for everything that that kind of worked for me which uh, like a lot of the the big fights did work for me pretty well like just in terms of like size and scale i was i was pretty impressed with some of them but again a lot of the much like with the first the very first one a lot of the character business just really didn't work for me no, uh, I actually like creature design wise. I, I I think the film is quite good. I, I like the even beefier Godzilla than what we, we got before. I thought that was very nice. Uh, and the Japanese thing, are th- apparently mocking us super hard for our fat ass Godzilla, <laughs> fat fat American Godzilla. <laughs> he's the he's the fast food Godzilla. Um, but I, he, I, he he eats a lot. It's just he just has to. I mean, it's Godzilla. He's growing boy. You got to fuel all that nuclear uh, yeah. nuclear there's breath. Gonna a, there's going to be a lot of nitpicking in this episode. But can I start with one right away? Whoever designed the the Mothra containment <laughs> system, I mean, that's that doesn't even work for for even like two seconds. That it looks so elaborate, and then what does it do? It does it breaks down instantly. <laughs> this movie is so full of that kind of crap. I mean, it's so chaotic. I mean, there's no you, you don't know what the plan is a lot of the time, and then the plan uh, you get as you mentioned this business about Ghidorah and it's in it being an, this alien creature and being able to control the other kaiju, and then you know you have all these plans in conflict with each other and you don't really you're not really clear what the plans are and how the hell they're going to work like what in the world 
is Dr. Emma Russell played by Vera Farmiga. What's her plan? What is she? What is it? What is the? Is it that she intends to do to stop this? Because uh, I, I never could quite figure it out. I mean, my understanding is that uh, Emma is consciously releasing all of the kaiju in the understanding that they're going to probably bring devastation to the world and kill half the people, but then like restore everything and everybody will be better off. And there's kind of a fun hypocritical aspect to that, that like she very clearly means it's okay if 50% of the world dies, as long as it's not me and my daughter, like everybody else, that's fine. Yeah. And like, there's a, there's a 1% like rich elitist uh, aspect to that, that does feel very like relatable and, and, modern and up to the moment and is just completely unexplored like completely undefined and like so much once again it's something that is interesting and works conceptually on paper and then just really doesn't come out in the film at all it just comes across as like she doesn't know what she's doing and she's disorganized yeah you could argue that that's because one of them turns out to be an alien and it just messes everything up I yeah. guess. Yeah, it does. It does. Or you it could always just, does. When, when one of your kaiju is an alien, all your plants <laughs> go out the window. I, I think it's actually pretty hilarious that we're like, we've got these like 17 odd uh, giant city destroying monsters. Everything would have been fine if not for that one that's a cuckoo. But what, but the, yeah, but there's, well, I mean, I guess that one does throw it off. But I mean, look at this machine that she has invented, this orca or the code that she's co-invented has the power to um, pacify the monsters, but she doesn't really, that's not ultimately what happens here. Well, it's, but I mean, that arguably is because, I mean, there, there is a sequence where they start waking up and, uh, the Charles Dance character, Alan Jonah, it's just the most generic, I've got two first names, uh, kind of soldier name imaginable. Um, but the guy in charge of the eco-terrorist group that's uh, squirreling her around the world is like, you said we were going to do this one at a time. And she's like, oh, it's not me. You know, they're, they're all waking up. I think... In theory, the plan might have been uh, to go around to them one at a time, wake them up, pacify them, and mm. theoretically use them for the kind of thing you see in the closing credits, again, where they're bringing rain to the Sahara and restoring the uh, Great Barrier Reef and whatnot. It is possible that she thought she had the whole thing under control and <clears throat> Ghidorah like, not responding as expected, and then all of the other kaiju waking up at once around the world, like the plan went wrong. But again, it's not edited or explained well and i don't think that like that aspect of it really comes across and she charles dance's character which again there are so many really talented people in this cast and there's just there's a whole lot of like why is sally hawkins in this uh (laughs) film in order to to be in it for two minutes before she gets killed you know what is david strathairn doing the answer to some of this is they were in the 2014 Godzilla and their characters are carrying over. But when you have a David Strathairn and you're only using him for like a couple of uh, remote reports, when you have a Aisha Hines and her only job is to stand there and look uh, annoyed when Kyle Chandler won't show up, when you have an O'Shea Jackson Jr. and like his job is to occasionally say, well, this is certainly a messed up situation. Like <laughs> he's funny though. He He's funny, but he's so good and he's so underused because there's so much going on in this film. Yeah. With Sally Hawkins. I mean, that was one of the things that people commented on, which is that this was a character who figures in, who was in the last film and figures into this one. And we don't even see her die. We, there's no evidence. We don't see her die. We just 
know she's deceased later on because it's because the film just tells us she's deceased yeah and that had uh, like just all of the earmarks of something that uh didn't work in editing and audiences were confused and so they added in a placard that, that said had her, her face and the word deceased <laughs> on Sally it hawkins died on the way back to her home yep exactly <laughs> exactly that kind Couldn't of she thing have taken Ghidorah back to his home planet while she was at it yeah it's just no i just don't think there's any good excuse for a film like this to be this confusing, <laughs> right? I mean, it's it, it should be pretty it should simple. Be really I mean, simple. You know, humans, monsters fight, humans try to stop them. You know, there's got to be some other scheming. I mean, that is kind of a kaiju thing where there's you have to figure out some sort of thing going on around the fighting monsters just to pad out the movie in some ways. But um, I was confused by what was going on in this film pretty much from the beginning. Uh, and yeah, it never really let up until the end. I Did I miss the scene where uh, Godzilla sits humanity down and has a heart to heart with them about the fact that they basically try their utmost to murder him? And then like roughly 20 minutes later, they're like, hey, wake up, go fight our enemies. Yeah. It no, just, it, it feels just, like there's... a very reasonable monster, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're he not... gets it. He thinks big picture. We're not going to let a little oxygen destroying stand in the way of our mutually beneficial relationship. But I can, come on. I mean, at, at the moment where he charges into battle with like the, the collected might of humanity and their tiny little ships behind him, did you, did you not feel like a little, a little surge of hometown pride? Yeah, that's there, there's yeah, for sure. But I, I will say this, you know, you know who comes off as the least likable character in this film? Ghidorah? No, Rodan. Rodan's <laughs> just Rodan's just whoever's got you know whoever feels feels like he's on the you know he wants to be on the side of whoever's winning. Just kind of cozy, you know, kind of kind of cozies up to whoever the big man is. You know, whether it's Ghidorah, or Godzilla, just I, no respect for Rodan. Rodan watching. is the Rodan star- worships Ro- power. Rodan is the star scream of this movie. Boy, I, I I have to say I think that it's correct for humankind to have a bit of a beef with monarch as an organization i mean mm. to this extraordinarily costly secretive extravagantly funded operation that, w- that that operates with no oversight and causes unending disaster i mean i think uh this is a pretty bad bad organization yeah they're not great and then <laughs> i mean in the end it, it's pretty clear that like all of the information has come out and uh humanity is just entering a new phase of uh kaiju relations and i trying to super fast read like all of the clips streaming by over the closing credits i was like i kind of want to see this movie the the movie described there feels like a really big vicious version of uh detective pikachu <laughs> it's just like man now we're living in uh harmony with all of these weirdo creatures yeah i missed all i was reading the credits i, reading, I missed all the headlines because i was reading like who was in the film oh the, um, a lot of really important things happen during the critics during uh, the credits I, like I, I should probably go see this movie again is what you're saying uh, yeah you should definitely go <laughs> see this movie again yeah we were uh we were talking uh sort of between episode uh downtime about like i i nodded off for a couple of minutes and i missed atlantis and uh scott's like i i did not off <laughs> what do you mean atlantis yeah <laughs> it kind of seems like you missed that part. no i i did i it just wasn't called atlantis it's this it is but there is this uh, former the ruins of this underwater city in which uh godzilla sort of hangs out right <laughs> it's definitely atlantis i don't know why atlantis is in this movie but setting up for a future atlantis movie. why not pre atlantis prequel it's coming it's maybe a, an the, aquaman the, crossover the monster verse i didn't even think about the, the whole monster verse thing but i don't know it's yeah. uh well it's it's gotten more legs than the dark universe at this point yeah. um and 
if I can say one, you know, one takeaway from this is I guess I'm not totally averse to seeing more monster first movies. Um, no. I didn't, I, I, I liked the 2014 Godzilla fine. I wasn't, Oh, you to, weren't, you weren't that. I don't know. It's, it's good. It's fine. Okay. It's fine. Contrast the way that movie borrows from Spielberg versus how this movie borrows from yeah. Spielberg. I think it's interesting because I think that movie actually gets what, you know, how Spielberg puts together a shot and constructs a sequence where it's, it's like, I don't know, just have some people staring up at the sky in awe. Uh, <laughs> it's going to take that part. Yeah. Uh, from, but I mean, I, I, I didn't love Kong Skull Island. This no. one, I, I think I like least of all, but I don't think like I'm completely checked out of, I, I'm, I'm at least going to show up and see what happens in the next one. Oh, yeah, I mean, what, you, what are you, you, you going to skip a monster movie? No, I'm not going to skip no, it's a never You know happen. me too well, Scott. Yeah, I do. I do. Of course you're going to see it. And I will too. I don't, I believe in Godzilla. So how, how much of the kind of nonsensical aspects of this movie do you think were intended, maybe? Or or a wink and a nod or, or self-conscious in some way? I mean, is it is a film that really is this poorly thought through? Or is there something just kind of like that's supposed to be fun about just like throwing all the stuff at the wall and seeing what sticks? I wish it was fun. I was never had fun in this movie. I think, it, you know... Everything about the tone of it says take this very seriously, even if it's really light with with things like destroying the entire city of Boston. Yeah. But I mean, I, I like Bear McCreary's work as a composer, but I felt that this was a far heavier score. Uh, I mean, it's suitable. It suited the material in terms of how it's presented, which is, you know, very dark and heavy and ominous. But you know, I just, I just found this sort of really funereal score uh, oppressive, and, and and it was just one oppressive element among many. I, I was never really enjoyed watching this uh, giant monster movie, which is which is an odd thing. And the the, st- the actual stabs of humor. I mean, O'Shea Jackson has a couple of moments, but like Bradley Whitford's quippy in this mm. movie. It's 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 dreadful. What's, and the, I, what's, what's I, the one that really? we, we I, were I, focusing I, on that was just completely awful? Like. Well, what? And I like Bradley Whitford in general, but but yeah, it, it's after we've seen Fenway destroyed, he says like it's going to be a bad, you know, referring to the possible destruction of Boston. Like, it's going to be a bad day for Red Sox fans. It's already a very bad day for Red Sox fans. <laughs> Their beloved ballpark just got destroyed, and and I'm assuming that the future of the franchise is is kind of questionable at that point, given they have no place to play in the middle of a ruined city. So <laughs> it's, it's yeah. you know, the, no, You're saying it's get a, much little, I mean, we a really, little insensitive I mean, it, of Bradley Whitford. Th- that Fenway really gets destroyed. Yeah. I mean, and plus, where's the... By a big green monster. But, but that's what the thing There's no... There's, where's the green... <laughs> it's, it's like, 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 the most, like, like the most low-hanging comic <laughs> fruit available. There's a big green monster in Fenway Park, and there's never any commentary yeah. on it. Come on, it's well. right there. And the other thing, too, the other thing that, again, I'm nitpicking here, but just that I found so ridiculous is that uh, Millie Bobby Brown has, has survived this Fenway yes. disaster and she has somehow made her way back through the rubble to go back to her semi-intact home. Yes. And she is hidden in a bathtub, right? <laughs> she's, yes. she's okay, so all the entire place is, collapses on her but she's in this, she's protected by being in this bathtub. They discover her, they bring her back and when, and when she comes back to life, she basically is basically as if she has drowned. 
but there was no water. It was no water. She was in a bathtub, but there was no water in the tub. So 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 she, when she does that that whole I've been drowning, I almost drowned thing of sputtering and having like you know, spitting up water. It's like where did the water come from? It, you, you're in a bathtub, and you what the you didn't fill the bathtub with water. It was just insane. Uh, I I can't explain the water spitting. I am not going to try to explain like, the water but spitting. This is like a huge Bradley set. Whitford, like... I enjoyed a lot, but okay. I I admit I felt like he was dropped in from Cabin in the Woods, mm-hmm. and uh, like if somehow his character survived that film despite everything we see, because he's just his job is to sit there and watch monitors and make wisecracks, and it just it feels so much like the same character that I half wonder if it's a tribute and. I feel like he's enjoyable, but he also doesn't belong on that team and he doesn't belong in this film and he doesn't have any purpose. And it's just, he's a yet another like really talented actor. Who's just kind of slumming it here with no good purpose. And it just, it feels very strange. Don't you think that he, rather than Ken Watanabe, who's extremely useful, that Bradley Whitford would have been the better person to commit suicide by using this machine to uh, awaken Godzilla. I don't see any reason why Bradley Whitford's character would do that since he no, had he shouldn't, but he, no but personality I'm just saying, or arc whatsoever. I'm just saying like, they should you know, recognize that Ken Watanabe is, is somebody we're going to want to see more of. The, the, that you're just going to want to keep. I mean, yes. if we're, if we're going to be that way about it, I kind of feel like Aisha Hines' character, uh, who appears to be like a very serious woman who's very accomplished and takes her duty seriously, uh, might have been a, a better character for that. I'm, I'm not sure where she goes. Uh, I lost track of a lot of the, the characters in this film. And you know who I didn't lose track of? was kyle chandler who spends most of the movie just being an immense annoying asshole yeah i love kyle chandler but yeah, yeah no you're, you're not wrong about him in this movie and he's, a less he's than great performance a though. really good performer he's Incredible. a really good actor but like the what this movie gives him is basically you know shut up i'm not listening to you i'm just screaming at everybody over and over about how these things need to die so it's a big transition when he decides they don't need to die but like the scene where they bring him in to help consult on finding his wife and he just screams down an entire briefing and they all just kind of stand there sheepishly and let him like yell at them. I, it was, it it went nowhere. It it had no purpose except to remind us for the 37th time uh, that he deeply resents Godzilla and it stopped them in the middle of delivering exposition that I wasn't enjoying, but that we theoretically needed. Uh, and he just, he does it over and over. He's playing uh, The Rock in San Andreas. He's playing that character who's just like, all that matters is my wife and kid, and I don't care if everybody else here dies. I My purpose is to just scream meaninglessly about like how much I hate everything that is not my wife who betrayed me and left me to die and my weirdly precocious kid who can survive any amount of stuff except possibly a small amount of water in the mouth. Well, she can always find a bathtub. That's that's like her special skill. So so oh here's I've got the I've got the ultimate Godzilla King of the Monsters challenge for you. Explain Zhang Ziyi in this movie in what in what in her I mean you, you might know this more cuz there's a connection to Mothra and, mm-hmm. and and uh that I think is rooted deeply into the in the series that it isn't really that well, I can explain Zhang Ziyi is I think you know you can appeal to the Chinese box office if she's in it but uh, are you talking about the fact that, that you see that she has a twin at some point and, and, but and there's oh, a yeah. and there's a mold, and there's the, all this connection to 
Mothra. And yeah, the, in the original Mothra, there's the she, Mothra has these twin girls who are like this otherworldly, you know, supernatural creature. I forget what what exactly they are, but like fairies. They, 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 yeah, they sing a song, and it's and there's a little sip of the song in, in this film as well, but it's not really drawn out. I, it, it's another instance where it feels like we kind of need it a Godzilla versus Mothra movie and the Godzilla versus King Ghidorah movies to build up to this sort of this, this, this uh, monster palooza because a little more time with those maybe would have been better. I don't know. Would have been yeah. better. I don't. Mothra I, looks cool. I mean, I don't know that I needed that many more films, but it does kind of seem to be like people are perpetually asking like, what does the MCU do right? That all of these other franchises are doing wrong. Mm-hmm. And it just seems like the incredible rush to get to Avengers without doing any yeah. of the, the buildup movies. Too. That's right. Exactly. It's like, it's like Iron. You go. It's like what if you went from Iron Man to the Avengers, right? Yeah. That, that yeah. that's what this is. It's like there's not a lot of buildup. So so then something like that might have had some richness to it, like like the Zhang Z character and her family and her roots, and and then of course in the film's roots and in, in the original Mothra and everything like that. If you take time with that, you know, then then that's going to pay off in an Avengers like showdown, like King of the Monsters. But but here it's like, what in the heck does is all the stuff that we're be that's just being thrown at us, and why is it being used to minimize this this uh, wonderful Chinese actress Zhang Ziyi? Well, it sounds like we didn't love this movie, and we should probably move on to comparing it to a movie that we did love because that's always fruitful. But before we transition out, I will just say I did really enjoy the interaction between Ghidorah's heads. I like the fact <laughs> that they're much like uh, the individual tentacles that uh, Doc Ock wears in the in Spider Man Two. It, like they all seem to have personalities and like the middle one is the helper head, you know, it, it pulls the call off the, uh, the regenerated one. It, it grabs the other ones when they get distracted by devouring people instead of, you know, the fighting they're supposed to be doing. It's just, there's kind of this weird sense that it's the mom head that's always like paying attention to what's going on. Yeah. And, uh, like, I like the fact that the three headed monster has different head personalities. I think that's uh, a good gag that plays off repeatedly throughout the movie. Yeah, the kaiju are all really well. I mean, that that, yeah, that really I, well. Can they look great? I like really some of the new ones they brought in too, like that woolly mammoth looking thing, and and yeah, there's some really interesting looking creatures in this. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Godzilla and Godzilla King of the Monsters. Hold your fire. We don't know he'll attack. Well, he will if you keep those guns on. Let him know we're not a threat. Open the shields. Do it. What's with the light show? It's an intimidation display. Consider us very intimidated. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. I kind of want to start with what, what Godzilla means. Like we talked a lot in part one about the original 54 Godzilla, like as a metaphor for uh, the atomic bomb and everything it did to Japan and like the kind of collected cultural trauma there. Does this new Godzilla mean anything? I mean, is, is it 
representative of like the wrath of nature coming back against us for what we've done. You know, I th- I feel like if anything, we didn't unpack the original Godzilla enough because I, some of the scenes that really stick with me from that are the really upsetting scenes of the hospital after the monster attack and how much they mirror what I've seen of footage of survivors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. I bring that up not just because we, we missed it, but also I don't know that there's the equivalent of that in here because it is at least in the broad strokes, the metaphor here is, is the environment, but I don't know that we've seen you know, it is just it's just sort of announced as the environment. We haven't really seen any. We don't really see anything that's the equivalent of the environmental damage that's being done right now. It's just monsters wrecking havoc, and we're told that the environment is involved somehow. Uh, but there's not like a metaphorical equivalent to it, unless I missed it. I mean, maybe I missed some stuff in this movie. There was a lot going on. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't. I think it's a pretty shallow kind of like tossed off metaphor in terms of the environment. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, I don't really. It's almost like we need a metaphor. Here's a metaphor. It's kind yeah. of like that that scene where you see King Ghidorah in the background and there's a cross in the foreground, and it's like. I don't know. Maybe it's a religious metaphor or something. <laughs> King Ghidorah has three heads, eternity. I don't know. Whatever. Uh, I, it is. It is. There is not a lot of depth to what they're doing here. Yeah, I mean, this is kind of Godzilla is the center of the of being this of nature, be right or mm-hmm. something of of being this this force that could be triggered in certain ways or is supposed to be supposed to be able to keep things in balance in a way that humanity cannot um and so it has to be treated as such but i, I don't think that that comes through whereas right whereas the the metaphor in the original godzilla is so complex it's so and realized in so many interesting ways because it's not just about the atomic bomb and its effects and those sort of lasting traumas, but it's also you know about the hyd- the development of the hydrogen bomb and, and future uh, weapons of mass destruction and and uh, and how far humanity is has gone and, and could go in the future if we continue on the current path. And I think that's a much more, that's pretty significant thematically and it's so much the purpose of Godzilla. It's not just tacking on a metaphor because that's what you have to do in a Godzilla movie. But it's like, it's like, this is what the substance of the original Godzilla is, uh, which is a big difference. I mean, I do like the idea of a Godzilla that's representative uh, in a significant, important way of like what's going on with, with the environment right now. Just in terms of, you know, we're seeing we're seeing more flooding, we're seeing rising sea levels, we're seeing more superstorms, we're seeing more flash fires, like all of these big things that people think of as uncontrollable. And like Godzilla doesn't come around to actually working exactly as a defense for humanity until humanity starts working directly with him. Uh, and I, I maybe that's one of the reasons why that uh, scene of him storming into battle with all of those helicopters behind him feels rousing is because there's a sense of like, hey, maybe we can make a difference here. And I'm not sure that the fight that follows actually reflects that in any way. I'm not sure that we do end up making a difference. But but there's that one little moment of like, hey, we matter too. like, hey, we can actually do something about this that's empowering in a movie that 
largely feels like it's about like uh, apart from from emma and uh charles dance and like that what they're up to doesn't feel like it has a lot of a place for for people in it it has a place for people's sacrifices making a difference uh you know like ken Watanabe's character but it doesn't necessarily have a place for for people in battle except frantically dodging and trying to get out of the out of the blast radius so i mean maybe there is i do think that there's meant to be an environmental metaphor there but like as you say maybe it's just not articulated well enough to matter exactly i think the problem is it's just articulated it's not really depicted in any way that's uh, effective Oh, once again, uh, if you just read those things that blitzed by for uh, upward of a half a second each during the closing credits. I wanted to see who was in the movie, Tasha. <laughs> I can't That's read two not what at, credits are for, I Keith. I can't read two things at once. <laughs> credits, credits are for setting up the next movie. Haven't you figured that out by now? <laughs> Seriously, the, the those closing credit clips uh, feel like they set up about four different potential future movies in the franchise. Cool. I'll gradually watch them. Uh, I I have, wait, wait I until you can I may see him on YouTube. Bailed on the movie before seeing all that. Oh, there stuff. is a post-credit stinger. Where oh. Charles Dance's character acquires was it's a head of uh, yeah, one the of Gidor's the head, head, presumably. Which I I gotta say that post-credit sequence just made me weary because we spend so much time in this movie watching uh, Godzilla battle Ghidorah with like just more and more human cost and city cost and personal cost for Godzilla and like at the end it's it's this huge thing that seems to take like all of his effort to finally take this thing down and that post credit sequence is just like man screw you he'll be back it's fine like the the important part is that we can do this all again for another $200 million later. And it just felt so self-defeating. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's it's ending the movie with, oh yeah, but the Joker survived. He like grabbed onto a flagpole or something. <laughs> I don't know. He'll be back. Give it about three years. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Keith, you had uh, something specifically you wanted to bring in. Yeah, I want to talk about urban destruction and how it plays out in both these films, which makes centerpieces of, of giant monsters destroying cities. And this whole comparison section is going to be why Godzilla 1954 is better than this movie, but it is you know meaningful to see Tokyo destroyed in the original Godzilla with, with its echoes of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but also of the air raids on Tokyo during the war. I mean, this this is a, a country that had seen a lot of damage and a lot of unpredictable death from above. And it kind of captures the horror of that, of, of people fleeing. I mean, the uh, images of, of people fleeing Godzilla uh, in horror have become kind of a kaiju cliche, but it's it's still, you know, it has a freshness of, of a lived experience in, in this one and in and, and, and the 54 Godzilla. And in Godzilla King of the Monsters, it, it is, it feels really uh, detached from, from any real danger. I mean, there's a lot of, you know, things getting destroyed, but you never really get a sense of what the destruction means. And it's, I think it's an interesting time to reflect on how we depict this sort of thing in films, because I felt like after nine 11, we would never see it again. Mm. It felt like we could never see a city destroying movie um, again. And I was for a while, I was okay with that. And I feel like it kind of crept back in first in thoughtful ways, like war of the world, Steven Spielberg's, uh, film which was very reflective of, of 9-11 and now it's at this point it's just well we can go back to blowing up cities We're again for, just, for it's fun just, it's such a sick fantasy and I don't I don't understand it why. is but but I mean it is 
but also, you know, I I feel like in in, in the original Godzilla, the fantasy is not that different. It's just like kind of it's pure horror and kind of like you know darkly therapeutic or something. And and this, I'm not sure what it is. I remember I remember a quote from you when, when like uh, some of all fears came out, which which was another fairly early after 9/11. Uh, film that involved a nuclear bomb going off in, I think, Philadelphia. And you said something like America just needs its head examined. <laughs> but, um, yeah. but at least that, it kind of felt, it, it was a, a more grounded depiction of that that felt like it at least acknowledged the horrific possibilities of that kind of destruction. I don't think you really get that here. I mean, it's, it is a bad day for Red Sox fans. I, oh, I will admit yeah. that, though. Well, I mean, there's, like, the urge towards destruction is just a really primal human urge i mean the first game i think that that babies learn to play is you stack up five blocks and then you knock them over and like you've seen the face of a baby just going ah like 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 thrilled to death that like you piled up like eight blocks and then they got to knock it over and then you do it again can you can do it all day like there is a delight in knocking things down but what if they're city blocks tasha <sighs> God, <laughs> why do why are we why am I still on this podcast? Uh, that was terrible, and you're fired, uh, and also really astute, and you're rehired, uh, and you have a point. But like, I I feel like there's a just like a whoa that was that was really big that was really badass kind of factor that almost has nothing to do with like actual certainly then like cost in material or cost in time or cost in lives that's just like oh my gosh he really knocked over a big thing this time and i mean when i saw the godzilla movie like people were cheering people were super super excited every time godzilla roared uh specifically the first time he roared the first time he uses his, his atomic breath uh the first time he you know lights up and he's gonna go nuclear like all of that stuff people were just over the moon for like mm -hmm. people get very excited about destruction Keith, I feel like the there's an issue that's just like, no matter how filmmakers approach uh, destroying a city in an action movie, somebody's going to complain. Sure. But, because there were so many complaints over Man of Steel and like Superman's apparent indifference to the fact that he was like smashing buildings full of people. But then you end up with uh, all like more and more movies are like, Oh, we totally evacuated Boston. Mm -hmm. Like we 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 called them. <laughs> we called everybody up ten minutes in advance and said monsters are coming, and so they left. Or they got in bathtubs. They all got in <laughs> bathtubs together. Uh, you know the the fantasy at this point is we magically got everybody to safety, and it's all fine. It's all just knocking over blocks yeah, at this knock, point. Just knock those buildings over. <laughs> it's just, just, just enjoy it. It's completely bloodless. But so then people complain complain about that because it's not mm -hmm. realistic and it's ridiculous. Uh, but like you, you got to make one choice or the other. Like is the only acceptable choice not destroying cities? I don't mean for that to sound like, oh, what do you expect me to do? Yeah, no, I know. I mean, it's a Godzilla movie. You got to knock over some buildings. I don't know. I just, it, it felt like there's there's thoughtful ways to do it, and there's thoughtless ways to do it, and this just feels like a, a, a more thoughtless uh, way to do it. So, but, but what does the thoughtful way to do it look like, I guess? Because I just don't know at this point. Hmm. I'll get back to you. I'll get back to you when I make that kaiju movie, and it's going to really make you think. Is it, is it Ghidorah is knocking over all the buildings, and, and Godzilla is very carefully trying to pick them up and reconstruct them? <laughs> sure. <laughs> Let's do that. But I mean, I almost think that 
you have to square up to it and square up to the destruction and square up to the fact that lives are being destroyed that that uh you know i mean that, that it's maybe is a big bummer i guess if you're making a movie like godzilla king of the monsters and you're like oh well i now have the feeling that i i now sense that millions of people have lost their their lives i mean if you feel the weight of that that's pretty terrifying but you know the 54 godzilla you know very strongly evokes you know the firebombing of tokyo you know and and which was a wood city that was just burned you know it's and it's doing it's a fresh wound i mean this is just this is 1954 so that film had the courage to do it and and made it make it into something that that was truly uh meaningful and, and resonant and this is just another example of a hollywood film that is openly fantasizing about our own destruction well is- i mean that's a really really strong impulse as well it's i it's something that we just contend with a lot because we're there are so many ways these days for us to destroy ourselves i think that is kind of a fantasy is like just as the as the zombie apocalypse movie is just like what would it be like if all of these people either went away or weren't people anymore and like i i didn't have to worry about society because society didn't exist Mm -hmm. i feel like there is a little bit of a fantasy that's just like what if this entire city was just flattened just leveled what if this was all gone and it's maybe not like the healthiest or most joyous fantasy but like it's a it's a dark impulse that's within all of us and it i think it really does come down to that toddler impulse that the incredible hulk is fun impulse that's just like you're sympathizing i mean it was very clear again that audience was sympathizing with godzilla so you're not the person down on the ground running from godzilla you're the giant monster with the power to just smash anything that's in your way like it's a power fantasy yeah well, uh, we we talked a bit about the uh, <laughs> the clumsy romance in the '54 Godzilla. I wanted to talk about kind of the clumsy fi- family dynamic in King of the Monsters, in part because you know, it, as we said in the first movie, it's just like there's there's no time for this. There's there's never any time to explain this relationship or to feel the love that we have for each other. And here you've got characters like just running around yelling. <laughs> constantly about their families uh but there's also just this this feeling there's there's no time to explain i just need to leave you on the collapsing scaffolding with the gigantic waking up monster try running away that'll probably work like there's no time to tell you what i'm up to we just we all need to run in opposite directions and it feels like there's a lot of that throughout the new one and it hinges so heavily on this three-way relationship dynamic uh, between Kyle Chandler and Vera Farmiga and Millie Bobby Brown. But, but again, I feel like it's the film's weakest element. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that you're supposed to care about any of those relationships or how any of those people feel in the middle of all of this mess. I mean, it's really the fact that Chandler and Farmiga and Brown are you know, fine actors that, that it sells better than the Godzilla version. Because at least, as I was saying in the Godzilla episode, ultimately that relationship is uh, integrated into uh, the question of well, how to deal with the Godzilla problem. And I, I don't think that that's really the case here. Here it's just more like this family that's been kind of broken apart. And they're all dealing with this chaotic situation in a chaotic way, and it, none of it really resonates at all. Yeah, to me, it's just the most kind of rote, fractured family reunited by trauma and crisis uh, storyline. We've seen it so many times. And I don't think there's, yeah, it's just nothing particularly um, intriguing at the way it's done here. I mean, good actors, not necessarily their best roles or even their best work, any of them. 
Scott, you wanted to talk about uh, monster effects in both movies and kind of what works, what doesn't. This is one area where I would praise both films. We have a lot of affection for the 54 version with it, whatever its limitations in terms of somebody in a suit and, and these little mat- meticulously constructed but obvious models that they get crushed. I mean, I think all those effects within you know are clever and 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 resourceful and and kind of beautiful for their time and and even you know to watch today. And and I also think that looking at the new movie that the creature design is maybe the thing I like the most about it. Mm. <laughs> I think all of the all of these creatures look pretty awesome and uh, and occasionally they're presented in a striking way cinematically um despite battle sequences that often in the way of modern blockbusters get um a bit chaotic but i would say on an effects level both films have their merits you know i can see getting tired of the fights in king of the monsters but i can't see not being moved by any of them like i i found i found a lot of that combat really thrilling Mm -hmm. by the end I felt like there was maybe too much of it. Like if there had been fewer really protracted lead-in battles, uh, that that last one might have landed a little harder. Uh, it, the movie ends up feeling very long as a result. But I actually felt a little bit similar about the uh, smashy smashy sequences in the first Godzilla. Uh, I felt like all of them went on a little too long, and maybe that's just because I'm not the uh, the core audience for like any amount of like now I smash a train, now I smash a building, now I smash a much bigger building like i i don't feel like any amount of that is fine as long as it keeps escalating there there comes a point where i get a little deadened to it and i feel like i got a little deadened to it in both of these movies i didn't feel they were particularly well staged in 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 uh king of the monsters either i i, I just you know the it wasn't incoherent but it I wasn't really a sense of like who was coming at who from where there was no, and, and a lot of it was so smoky and murky that, that I think if I could see it a little bit better, I think I might've enjoyed, I, I don't know why every battle had to feel like that one episode of game of Thrones when you couldn't see anything. <laughs> uh, that's kind of how I felt after a while though. I mean, uh, Mothra lights up. It's pretty easy True. to see her fighting Rodan. I, yeah. I, I enjoyed that face off. Even if it did have a little, a little of the feel of, uh, you know, the hero's female sidekick is going to fight the villain's female sidekick. Mm, sure. Not saying that Rodan is a, a lady bird or anything, but <laughs> it did have that sidekick battle kind of feel to it. But, you know, that said, I, again, I think Mothra is an interesting design and uh, Rodan having a, that caddish, cowardly personality uh, made him stand out a little and was fun. And I did think the final big face-off was, was pretty rousing and thrilling. Well, in case you want to revisit either or both of these movies to see exactly how rousing uh, the 37th destruction of a city is, Godzilla is available on DVD and online via the Criterion channel, uh, and it's available on the usual digital rental sites. And Godzilla, King of the Monsters, is currently in theaters. We'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Scott, what in the film world has been good for you recently? 
I've been seeing a lot of things I like. I mean, one thing I'm sure many of you'll be re- uh, hearing a lot about is the Scorsese Dylan doc that's on Netflix currently they're called rolling thunder review that's absolutely stunning and strange and, and wonderful um, but i wanted to go a little obscure and, and recommend a movie called leto this is a film that was in competition at Cannes last year it's a russian film uh, by a filmmaker named kirill serbrenikov uh, and serbrenikov was not in attendance at that festival because he was under arrest for uh, uh, embezzling allegedly embezzling two million in state money uh, for the avant-garde theater that he operates but in reality the feeling was that he was swept up in a putin-led crackdown on the artistic uh, community so there so there, that there's that as background in any case so but leto is a film about the Leningrad rock scene of the early 80s, which was inspired a lot by a lot of the new wave sounds that were coming in from the West. And the soundtrack is just loaded with with contributions by David Bowie and by Talking Heads. And there's some T-Rex in there. And it's a really outstanding soundtrack. But it kind of follows the scene of, the, of these, uh, you know, there's sort of a love triangle that isn't perfectly realized. But it's really about a couple of uh, musicians of different gen- generations who are trying to be these creative in somewhat imitative rock stars in a very repressive you know pre perestroika uh, soviet union and the film is full of these wonderful flights of fancy where where they're out there trying to realize this sort of bohemian dream and they occasionally get there or the film will take a situation that seems very drab and then fantasize a scene where it's not where suddenly the suddenly ordinary citizens start to break out into song and the world that the the leningrad that we see suddenly becomes like animated you know and in color you know the film is in black and white but suddenly we get bursts of color on the screen it's just a really interesting exciting film if you like you know that particular period in, in rock history or, or rock in, in general it's a really interesting musical it's uh, and i think it's kind of a comment it's a very bitter commentary on how things have kind of come full circle now in terms of in terms of russian culture to where to where these repressive conditions in in the early 80s uh, have kind of come back into the world of today in the world in which serbrenikov is only just now uh, coming out of house house arrest um, and and uh, for for charges that that seem to be sort of trumped up in order to punish him and to punish into kind of um, quell some of the some of the movement that's happening in the artistic community. So uh, interesting movie. Um, it's uh, it's something that you can find in um, in independent theaters. You'll have to look it up, but I think it's going to be also something that will come to. Um, streaming services reasonably soon. It's from the company that distributes distributes the film is called Gunpowder in the Sky, and uh, they put out the the recent film by uh, Alex Ross Perry, which is called Her Smell. Her Smell, of course, uh, which is called Her, Her Smell, and, and so that, so that you can track that one down now. So I think that that Leto is something you'd be able to track down pretty soon too. So something to keep in mind. Leto, uh, a, a a Russian rock musical by Kirill. Sarah Brennikoff. So uh, try try to keep that, write that down, and uh, I think it'll, it'll it'll be something that you'll have a chance to see at some point down the line if you don't live in New York and L.A. or whoever gets this movie right now. 
Tasha, what about you? I recently caught up on Booksmart, which uh, for a little while we thought about uh, doing it for the podcast. There was just quite the pile up of uh, different possibilities. And I kind of messed with the whole deal by really not wanting to revisit Superbad all that badly. I am a non-fan of Superbad. And I feel like the things that I don't like about Superbad were things that I was pretty poised to not like about Booksmart. I don't super enjoy movies about kids behaving badly about like young people uh trying to get drunk trying to get drugs trying to get (laughs) laid like the quest for vice movie is just not one of my favorite things uh so booksmart despite like how many people i really like and respect told me it was wonderful i went in with uh, kind of uh just a little bit dubious and i ended up liking it a lot. It didn't entirely overcome my my dislike of that particular trope, yeah. uh, but there's just so much to recommend it. And part of it is just how the two leads, uh, Beanie Feldstein and Caitlin Deaver, they're written in such a a different and interesting, intelligent way. It reminded me a little of uh, Nick and Nora's Ultimate Playlist and like the way that film like plays with very familiar like coming of age first time tropes. Here, the two of them are uh, kind of high functioning overachiever student grinds who get literally to the last day of school and realize that everybody they know from their uh, like elite California uh, school is probably also going to like uh, an Ivy League college and they suddenly decide that they've maybe wasted their youth by not partying so they decide they have to get to the biggest party in town and then it just turns into uh, what our old friend Neil Murray used to refer to as into the night movies uh, where people just like go on these crazy adventures episodic adventures from one place to the other as they try to figure out where this party is and there's a streak throughout it uh like a little bit of gross out humor there's a gag involving hardcore pornography there's an extended uh gag that becomes a running joke about uh masturbatory tactics um there's a gross out thing involving vomit like it is that kind of film that's just like hey girls could be raunchy too but there's also just a really intelligent drawing of the relationship between these two girls uh which is just entirely supportive in terms of how they relate to each other. Like it's so typical in films about girls of a certain age and from a certain era that everything has to be competitive and catty and about like hating other girls. And the relationship between these two girls is so pure. It's so charming. It's so friendly. Uh, And it's very, very specific. The humor of the movie is pretty ridiculous and over the, over the top. There's a sequence involving uh, hallucinogenic drugs uh, that the recipients didn't realize they were taking, which is another trope I don't super love. <laughs> but it gets so unreal and out there and bizarre and unpredictable in its execution. It won me over. And that was just the story of this movie was, okay, they're going in this direction. Not my favorite. All right. That's a really creative way to deal with that. And it happens over and over it's throughout a ragged, this movie. It's a pretty ragged film it really is um but i think it kind of i think it sort of a it, it being an into the night movie it, uh, allows it's it, those movies have the freedom to kind of jolt you in a lot of different directions at once um it, watching it there's like i was th- watching it was like boy we could have paired, paired this with so many different movies other than super bad I mean, you could pair it with days to confused which is another last day of school movie you could pair it with something like harold and kumar go to white castle Certainly. uh because this is a this is really about 
about their quest to get to this party, but they just have to go to one party after another before they actually get there. Um, there's a lot of different things that we could have um, paired it with. It would have been good because because I, I, it's one I wanted to talk about. I had I had a little bit more mixed feelings than about it than I think the the average person. I think it's been pretty very well received, and I and I I was. I'm a little bit more mute. I feel like it's got a really, really strong center to it. And then a lot of the stuff around it, I didn't find as, as engaging or funny, but, um, but really worth striking. And like the film takes a big, big swings. I mean, it's a very, for Olivia Wilde, it's her first movie. She's going for it here. And uh, it's, uh, there's kind of a lot to mull over. Yeah, and it's not doing super well in theaters, despite uh, just being one of those like critical, critical darlings. Uh, People who've seen it seem to love it, but a lot of people aren't seeing it. And that's probably because it has a really, a really uphill road to drive as an R rated teen comedy is like an R-rated movie that's probably ultimately aimed at preteens looking at high school as like aspirational and exciting. So I'm really hoping that this becomes one of those movies that kind of finds its audience uh, and home video and possibly that finds its proper place as like the naughty subversive slumber party movie uh, that w- you watch with your friends yeah. and you're maybe not supposed to be watching something this raunchy but you're getting away with it uh, and along the way maybe you learn a little something about life so book smart <laughs> olivia wilde uh, enjoyed it a lot keith i'm gonna recommend a movie for your mind well by, by the time this episode comes out you'll be able to read about it in a fascinating article on the verge that i'm writing uh for tasha robinson uh but I know her. it's an audiobook called william gibson's alien three and if that sounds odd to your ears because there already is an alien three and william gibson had nothing to do, do with it i'll briefly walk you through uh, how it exists. Basically, uh, there were many different screenplays for the third Alien film uh, before the one that we know and some of us love, right? You love it, right, Tasha? Alien 3? Yeah. Mm. I, I, know. I, thought there was... I honestly haven't seen it since It's very since interesting. I thought I knew like one really earnest defender. I thought yeah, maybe, Oh, maybe I'm definitely not the one earnest defender yeah, of Alien 3. But, but I mean, it's, it's, it's probably the movie I don't like that I've watched the most because <laughs> I keep, it, is, it is interesting. Are you maybe uh, thinking of Joss Whedon? Um, is, is he maybe the earnest defender? Uh, maybe. Who knows? You know, a lot of people had a, in, in hands a lot of different screenplays that, that never became Alien 3. The first among them was William Gibson, who was uh, at the time just, you know, hot off of Neuromancer and was was uh, clearly an important science fiction writer uh, whose work had a, you know, would be everyone who would be a force to be reckoned with for a while. And he took a job writing Alien 3. And ultimately, nothing from that screenplay, except for a few tiny details, got used. It was going to pick up where aliens left off. The main characters would have been uh, those played by Michael Bean and Lance Hendrickson. And uh, it had sort of like kind of a, a Cold War metaphor to it. Um, ordinarily, you know, when, when a script is discarded, it's never really seen by the public. But in the early days of the internet, the 1990s, uh, it leaked online and kind of picked up a cult following of its own. At the end of last year, it was turned into a comic book miniseries by Dark Horse. And now this audio drama uh, directed by Dirk Maggs, who's a British director and writer who specializes in audio drama, where you know there's kind of a healthier tradition of audio dramas in, in Britain than there is here, where, it's, where it kind of died off when television came along. Uh, it continued via the BBC and other outlets. And this is an extension of a lot of work he's done. He's done a lot of work adapting properties like X-Files, previous Aliens things, even like Super, Superman and Batman's 
stories into audio dramas, and he's picked up quite a following. Uh, and he does a really good job with it here. It's it's kind of fascinating to you can close your eyes and kind of picture the alien film that that could have happened from this. And I found it quite enjoyable on its own terms. It's not as William Gibsony as you might expect. But it's very alieny, and it's very steeped in the, the mythos of that series. And as sort of a peek into a universe, an alternate universe in which this was our Alien Three, I, I found it a really enjoyable listen. Oh, that sounds fascinating! I look forward to reading this article on this verge. <laughs> I know, seriously, you've turned it in. I haven't looked at it yet, so I am actually literally looking forward to reading it. I should probably say it's on Audible. It's an Audible uh, mm-hmm. original production here. Very exciting, and uh, just sounds. Super interesting. Oh, and it's also add that Michael Bean and Lance Hendrickson reprise their roles from Aliens. <laughs> yeah, you really <laughs> that is, should. That's probably that. a pretty key detail to make it even seem more like an extension of, of, of uh, that film. Uh, well, that sounds kind of pretty awesome. Interesting, interesting that that's what Lance Hendrickson is doing with his time. But I look forward to hearing it. Lance Hendrickson's also appearing in like five movies a year. He's he's seventy nine years old and he works all the time. So I know that feel. <laughs> Well, that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out June 25th and July 2nd. Keith, what's coming up next? What's coming up next, Tasha? Well, here come the men in black. For our next pairing, we'll take a trip back to the summer of 1997, a time when Will Smith ruled the multiplex alongside Tommy Lee Jones as a duo of alien patrolling special agents. Then we'll zap into the present with Men in Black International, a new take on the series starring Chris Hemsworth and Tessa Thompson. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of all the Godzillas there are and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Scott? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at, at Scott underscore Tobias, and you can find my work at uh, New York Times, Washington Post, uh, NPR, uh, uh, The Ringer, and other places. I have a big piece on The Ringer about Martin Scorsese's career in nonfiction uh, that uh, hopefully you, you'll have read at this point anyway. And I have another thing, big thing coming in Washington Post about all of the child's play movies so just for my the sake of, of me watching all god all god knows how many hours of child's play movies if you could take the time to read that i'd appreciate it um and uh what about you keith oh boy i'm, I'm as usual kind of all over the place like i said i was writing something for the verge i write stuff for vulture i write something for mel i write stuff for decider um you know and you can find me on Twitter at kphips3000. And you can collect my clips usually at keithphips.com. Tasha, how about you? You can find me over at The Verge, uh, where I edit such people as uh, one Scott Tobias and one Keith Phipps, uh, and generally handle the film and TV section. I uh, also occasionally do a little writing myself when I find time. I'm on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. Our absent producer, Genevieve Kosky, is on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky, appropriately enough. She is the deputy TV editor over at Vulture, and you can find her there. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. If you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. 
Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners, keep the show going, and keep King Ghidorah at bay. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. This is a no God's world.